Hi, everybody. I'm Liz Nord, and you're listening to the No Film School podcast. Imagine you're in film school, playing with a bunch of different cameras and perhaps touching actual film for the first time. Sadly, your grandfather passes away. When you're cleaning out his mysterious attic, you come across a vintage Bolex 16mm camera. But it's not just any Bolex, it's a prototype. It turns out that the iconic camera was designed by your own great-grandfather, who'd passed away 20 years earlier. This unlikely scenario is exactly what happened to Alyssa Balze, and so naturally, she had to make a movie about it. She spent the next decade-plus researching her somewhat enigmatic great-grandpa and interviewing several influential filmmakers who used his cameras, like Barbara Hammer, Vim Vendors, and Jonas Mikas. The film she made with her discoveries is called Beyond the Bolex, and it's a very personal look at the man behind the camera and just how visionary he was. My guests today are Alyssa Bolze and the film's producer and DP, Camila Lara Jr. I spoke to them after the film's premiere at Doc NYC to talk about what they learned about filmmaking along the way and why the Bolex is such an enduring and beloved camera that's still used today. Can you start just by introducing yourselves and your role in the film? Um, I'm Alyssa Bolze, and I'm the director of this film and a producer. And I'm Camilo Lara Jr., uh, producer as well, and uh, cinematographer, one of the cinematographers for the film. Uh, Jaredy was the other one. Cool. So um, before we even get into the details of your film, I want to ask you about about the Bolex. Mm. What do you think makes it just such a special fixture in the film industry? The Bolex is iconic in both the way it looks. A lot of people don't even know the name Bolex, but they see the image of it, and that equals 16 millimeter film. You see it on posters, you see it all over the place. So not only is it an iconic imagery, it's also a workhorse, and it has such a history to it. Generations are linked by this camera. Your great-grandfather, your grandfather had one probably, or his brother, or sister, and um, maybe your parents, maybe you. Maybe you're 25 right now and you're just kind of tired of digital and you want something you can get your hands on. So you're looking on eBay and you're seeing them all over eBay. So this camera just really is intriguing. There's something about it that is so tangible in a time when we can't really see how electronics work. So this is something you can feel. I know from uh, my own experience and how I ended up on the film, um, it was kind of this own personal love story that I had with the camera itself. And I think as we kind of saw yesterday during the Q&A, we even heard from somebody in the audience that had their own little bit of a love story with it. And I think that's kind of like the commonality that kind of goes across the, this filmmaking culture and people that use the Bolex in the past. Everyone has some sort of story and it was a workhorse and it's you know, being able to transcend time and uh, still being used to this day, we use it in our film, and I think that's what's special about it is that it continues, you know, going on constantly, and it's you could it's reliable. You can rely on it. You're sort of getting at this already, but what do you think it is really about the camera that has made it outlast all these other technologies that have come and gone? It's a very simple camera, so you can learn it pretty quickly, but it also can do so many things. You know, you can superimpose, you can do stop motion, single frame. Basically, it lets your imagination run wild. 
but it also has some really interesting limitations, which was what was most fascinating to me. You would think a camera that could only shoot for 27 seconds per wind wouldn't be your go-to camera, but people have worked with those limitations to create some really interesting work and happy accidents and whatnot. So I think there's something quirky about it that you can't really even put words to why it is so magical, but there is the magic to it. Um, I know for myself, what really separated that camera from many cameras out there, especially when I was in film school, was specifically the fact that it was a hand crank camera. So you didn't need anything besides the camera and a roll of film. That's it. I mean, yeah, you probably need a light meter. That will help a lot. We can eyeball most of the stuff if you've been shooting long enough. And that, to me, really separated it from the rest of the cameras. That and uh, the limitations that Alyssa mentioned forced creativity upon the person. And also all of these functions that aren't weren't really available for most cameras these days, or back then, now with digital cameras, yeah, there's a lot of uh, different bells and whistles that you can have in it. But uh, f at, for that camera at that time, it offered unparalleled creativity by having all those things immediately available all at once at any given time. And I think that's kind of really what, you know, helped develop this culture around the camera and made it so useful for people and also created this bond, I think, for owners who used it a lot. So the same things that it was invented for have also like given it staying power. So actually to your point about um, you know certain time periods when it was like especially useful, um, I loved this quote in the film from Vim Vendors who was talking about for filmmakers of a certain generation, like what was the exact, I wrote it down. Um, he said filmmakers' dreams were attached to that camera, which was such a beautiful sentiment. What do you think he meant by that? I think he meant that the camera could take them to the next level. This was kind of the difference between what you think of as a consumer camera and a prosumer camera. So this is the camera that you use to take your craft to the next level. So it's the one you dreamed about having. And it was within reach. It wasn't easy. It wasn't something you'd have to save money, maybe even sacrifice. I think, actually, if you want to hear a story really quickly of something that didn't make it in, he talked about sacrificing his music career for film because he had a, a tenor sax and he really wanted the Bolex. So at a pawn shop, he traded in his sax, his sax for the Bolex. And I don't know the direct quote, but he it's something... He put it as, I traded my music career for a film career. He wanted to be a painter. Um, he was a into art and uh yeah that that's he ended up going where you know film was because he felt like well i can paint with taking photos in a way with the light and whatnot like he likened it to instead of creating a painting he's creating one by capturing it and so that i mean i thought that was really interesting how he brought that up <laughs> i think it's like a two-prong prong thing you know i think like it was this camera that offered people an opportunity to go and be extremely creative Thus, like, you know, you could dream it up. You can do this with this camera because it offers all these different tools that most cameras didn't, you know, rewinding it, going backwards, double exposing, single frames, animating. There weren't a lot of things that gave you that opportunity back then. This camera did. So I think that was also kind of another layer, I think, of that statement. Um, yeah, was, he was one of, one of our favorite interviews, I, I would say. I mean, we were, we were both fan kids, so... <laughs> 
I want to get into to more about Vim Vendors and some of the uh, other luminaries that you had in the film, but why don't we step back for people that haven't seen it and just describe a little bit like your personal, well, Lissa's personal relationship with, with the camera and why that's even the subject that we're talking about. Sure. So I grew up at a time when video was the way you would start out filmmaking. I never touched a film camera until around the same time I discovered this story. So my world was mini DV, um, high eight. I made my, <laughs> I was running around with those little video cameras as a child. And the film world was intriguing, but a little scary. It, never, it felt very distant, very back, very much a part of the past. So I never really thought it was gonna be part of my future. So right when I was beginning film school, I went to my grandfather's memorial and it turned out that he had saved an entire archive of his father, my great-grandfather, Jacques, who had died two decades before I was born. And I didn't really know anything about him. I knew he was an inventor, but I didn't know he had any connection as a filmmaker. And until that moment, I was the only filmmaker in the family. My no one had any interest in that. And I was able to see that he had made hours and hours of films. And I couldn't watch them because they were, some of them were 80 years old, I think. And they were a bit fragile. And, but I had this feeling that I, I felt connected to him. And I found this 1927 Bullocks. I know it's 1927 because it had a tag on it that said 1927. And the word Bullocks was familiar to me just from hearing it, but it was right when I was starting film school, so I didn't really know what it was. But there was something about it where when I held it, I just, I had to find out more about this man. And that's really what launched the story. And slowly but surely I started digging into his to his past he had left a lot um, tons of photos let's see tens of thousands of photos documents schematics inventions cameras a lot of them looked about 50 like they were from the 50s or 60s but then there were these old projectors that looked like they were from the 30s and I realized I had kind of this time capsule of film history and I started Googling it, and there's all this different information about him saying he was born in three different countries. Nothing really was adding up, and there really wasn't that much. It was very bare. And I kind of felt like it was my duty to, to uncover his story. So I set out on this detective story quest to see if I could uncover it. Kind of as, you know, I thought it was maybe going to be a film school type project, but really it kept expanding when I realized that this camera wasn't just an iconic image. It was something that people had relationships with and it was a worldwide thing. And what's so interesting is when you look up the Bullocks online, you don't find necessarily references to all the filmmakers who used it. But if you take one out on the street, you get approached I dare anyone to go out with a Bolex for more than an hour on the streets. You People are going to come up to you. I mean, I went my first time with it, using it. 
I went to Hollywood Boulevard and Zorro, the person dressed as Zorro <laughs> on Hollywood Boulevard came up and said, oh, the Bolex, I have one of those. And then we went to Venice Beach and we got approached twice within half an hour. It's, and then there are the people who are just like, what is that? We went to, we went to Muscle, Be Muscle Beach on Venice and the people stopped working out to come and take a look at the camera. So, so basically when I really saw how the people had this relationship with it, I realized that the story was gonna be bigger than I had expected originally. I gotta say one thing that I thought was absolutely fascinating about how the story came together was that it wasn't like your family didn't know. I think people misunderstand and think that like, oh, they had no idea. They didn't realize the, how influential the camera was. So it was like, oh, he was this inventor. He invented a bunch of cameras, and that was kind of as far as it went. And then Alyssa found these breadcrumb trails that were like, wait, there's all this like confusion about what this actually is. Do you guys, I've heard this name before. Do you know what this camera is? And it kind of like, like she was the one that really discovered and put it in everyone's mind. Like this was a big deal what he made. I don't think you guys realized. The so for them, it was just like, oh, this is something great grandpa did. That's cool. And then you happen to be at film school and you discover, oh, wait, my great grandpa developed like one of the most beloved cameras of all time. Exactly. That's incredible. I don't even know if I fully grasped that from watching the film. It was hard to put it in the film. I mean, like, how do you even explain right, that? You right. know, um, totally. Because, I mean, yeah, it's a, you would think the family would all know. But I mean, there's so much he had done. Mm -hmm. And as you know, we didn't even touch on like half of it because there was not enough time. So totally. <laughs> Well, I have so many like thread questions now coming from that, but I do, I love the image of you kind of going out and shooting with the camera for the first time. And I'm curious for both of you, because I know you both shoot and have shot in this film, what that, what it felt like having grown up with digital cameras or, you know, tape based cameras. And like the first time you shot with a, with a Bolex, what was that like? It was interesting because you can hear it working with digital. It's silent. And it reminds me of a quote from someone I interviewed who's not in the film. They said something like, you can hear the money going, <laughs> running with the film. You can hear it clicking. And you are more connected to the process because you can, more of your senses are engaged. You're holding this thing. It's heavier than a digital camera. You're looking through the eyepiece. You can't really see much, so you're, there's some trust. You're, everything isn't automatic. So you feel more like it's an extension of you than, than at least I had with video cameras. But it also requires more trust in yourself. And um, it was intriguing. So it took, I, I think we actually, it came out pretty well the first time, but the whole time I was shooting the first roll, I didn't know were any of these images gonna come out. I couldn't go and just rewind the tape and watch it really quickly. I just had to trust and hope. And it was almost like opening a present when you went to Telecine and check it out for the first time. And oh my gosh, it actually it came out. Cool. Yeah, definitely the whole trust element is like what makes it to me very special. Um, not knowing and having confidence that you're competent enough to capture what it is you're trying to. But in that whole aspect, there's all sorts of surprises that you get that actually make it 
so much more than what um, you think you're capturing. Like the way that light hits the lens or hits the back of the film, like you will get light leaks and like all these little intriguing um, nuances or elements that you're not going to get with digital. It's a very clean look when you shoot with that. And so we go in and augment and post and make it look like that. But this is just so organic and beautiful. And I mean, that's how I felt the first time I got a tape back or a, you know, film back from it. I mean, it kind of blew my mind. I was like, I did not realize I captured half of this the way that it looks. Like, what have I done? Um, yeah. <laughs> Some of us remember when photographs were like that too, but you know, I won't get into that. <laughs> okay, so now I have to ask, how did you decide what to shoot a movie about a camera with? It was kind of interesting how that all happened. The first thing that we realized we needed to do is just kind of get eyes on what material we had. And in that process of going to go visit uh, her aunt and going through the attic, we started shooting things. Um, didn't expect any of it to really go into the film, but we started shooting. And, so it's uh, kind of like research footage. Just development footage, research footage. Like I had never seen anything there, so for me it was like quite daunting to go walk into a space that I've never seen before and like start shuffling through. Uh, you know, who at this point was uh, my my acquaintance's aunt. You know, so and I'm a, you know. 2,000 miles away across, you know, country. So for me, it was a little, like, difficult for me to try to get my mind wrapped around it. But, but there's so much to worry about with the archive that when we started doing that process and having shot it, we realized, like, wow, we have looks. We have different things that are going to play for the film. And early on, we kind of set some protocols and stuck to our guns and saying, like, we want this to look like that. These, this part of the film's gonna have to look like this. Um, so it was really like kind of like a, an established look that had um, brought to life the attic space. And then there's the verite look. So we actually shot some of it in blocks. Um, that wasn't the plan, it kind of just came out that way as the film was being done. And early on, one of the first things we shot were the attic scenes. Mm -hmm. um, it was just such an intriguing space. So when we first started with those cameras that we used, we were shooting on Canons, 7Ds, 5Ds were like the popular cameras that came out and that's what we originally did research on. We quickly realized like this was not gonna work for the film. Um, it's, you know, there was a lot that needed to go into play to make it actually look pretty. We had to light it. We, had, we couldn't just like show up and bring a 7D out. It wasn't very professional, but you do what you can. So um, that started a whole process of now moving into shooting log, flat looks, mm -hmm. neutral, so that we can get more out of what we were shooting and give more latitude to, towards the editor. So we changed camera systems. Um, also because we realized some of the cameras we were using before, we started on Canons, ended up on Sony's, mm -hmm. weren't quite giving us everything that we needed for the Verite side of the process. Um, so we ended up going that route, um, just bigger ISO range. Uh, the native really helped us to be able to use less uh, light in some situations, which as documentary filmmakers, like we didn't have the chance to constantly light everything. Right. So that's kind of the genesis of where we went with these cameras. And it ended up being about nine different ones that we used. So Yeah, I'd like to talk a little bit about why we decided to choose shoot some of it on digital and not go straight 16 or shoot the whole thing with the bullocks, which is a question I get pretty often. And it was a very conscious decision. I really felt strongly that this was a, a collision of eras, the digital and the film. 
And since I'm a character in the film discovering my great-grandfather's past, I really wanted my present to be part of the film and the look. I also thought it would work well because I wanted the Bolex footage to stand out more. If we shot everything on 16, either with a Bolex or another camera, the Bolex footage wouldn't be so much of a character. So by shooting it on digital or HD, every time you see the Bolex footage, it is really highlighted and you can see the magic of it. So, and then also, since within the film, I start shooting with the Bolex as I get to know it, as I learn from filmmakers I meet, I shoot more with it, I play with it a little bit, you start seeing the modern Bolex footage that I'm shooting alongside. And a lot of times we did shots where you see me shooting with the camera and then you see what I'm shooting through the camera. So it was really important to me that we shoot it in this way. And I often wonder, well, I think someone else, if, if someone else wanted to make a love letter to the Bolex, they could make a really awesome experimental film all on the Bolex, about the Bolex. Mm -hmm. But this to me was so much more than just a film about the Bolex, it was about the man. And he was ahead of his time and he was looking to the future. And it, it meant a lot to me to be able to make the movie about him with some of the cameras of the future, while at the same time using his camera, both myself and showing Bullock's footage from others that he never even found out. You know, he, I don't think he knew before he died how important this camera was. And I don't think he would ever comprehend that it would still be used today. So I'm trying to do the math. So it, it, it sounds like you used about nine varieties of digital camera. You had Bolex footage, your modern Bolex footage. You had your grandfather's classic Bolex footage. You had all kinds of Bolex footage from other filmmakers. You had tons of archival. It was kind of insane, um, but it actually felt really seamless from, from the viewer's perspective. So I'm just wondering how, like, how you pulled that off. How did you make it all sort of feel so smooth with all that different input? Don't jump in on that right away. Or? Yeah. So that all kind of connects to the the previous thing we were talking about when we first started shooting with cannons and then sticking with a look that we knew that we wanted to achieve. And so when we started shooting blocks of it, well, we wanted just certain scenes to look like they were very well composed and lit, warm textures and tones, things in the attic. That was all shot in one block. So then when we started moving on and uh, working on the Verte stuff, um, we moved to camera systems that, like, at this point, like, we really started to evolve, like, our own knowledge. And that all completely changed. Like, like we, I cringe, personally, at the stuff I shot the first three years. And then now, like, four years that, um, that were after that, I mean, like, completely changed. Like, my style and everything that we had done, um, the work Joe had done. So what that allowed us to end up doing was when we shot a flatter look, it gave us more of the flexibility of being able to match looks in post and we colored it. But that was all specifically done like we intended on getting, okay, if we can't afford to rent this camera for these new shoots that are coming up, we'll use something that we can match with it. And um, we ended up using the Sony A7S II and one 
for a couple of these like last minute interviews that came up or inserts that were we wanted to shoot. Um, one of them like at the very beginning that you see is like this uh, tracking shot that goes across all the family photos. Like that was done like, I mean, last minute. Like we all decided to just make it happen as soon as we could and uh, we needed it. We didn't have money to get the stuff together so we had to borrow it from our friends and so that flexibility and the choices for those camera systems which we made early on is what allowed us to be able to make it look seamless once we got into the editing process uh, or post process because or sorry color process because prior to that it did look pretty distinct in some ways but not in, not completely so the shooting at neutral is what really gave us that ability to be flexible yeah, I think a lot came together in color. But um, additionally, we I really wanted the discovery scene in the attic to feel a bit surreal, kind of like a memory. Even though the attic looked cool in general, <laughs> we definitely pumped up um, the image to be this surreal world. And instead of my intention, instead of jarringly going back to reality was as I started uncovering more to kind of tone it down as we went along by removing some of the surreal aspects such as the warm colors and and some of the lights he could uh, camilo could explain more how he did that but um i think we ease out of it in a very natural way so as i'm learning more about my great-grandfather it's becoming more and more realistic and so then you find yourself in this more, this just generally realistic world. And that's when we really start getting into the Bolex footage. And somehow, yeah, I mean, looking back, I'm not sure how we made all of, all that jumping back and forth from Bolex to uh, HD work, but it, it does, I, I agree. I think it works pretty seamlessly. Well, I think it was like decisions that you made, like creative choices early on when you decided like this needs to look distinct from the, the, f the other footage that we're shooting digitally so that we can really experience and appreciate what it is. Um, all the archival stuff, the things that JB did, we didn't want to touch or change any of the stuff that the filmmakers made. We wanted to keep it as true as possible. So in that process, it kind of gave us an opportunity to rethink it and be be more um, less critical about how we think it needs to look, to look pretty and be more respectful of like, this is, it's supposed to look how it's been delivered, you know, in one, three, three or four by three. And we wanted to maintain uh, that originality and be true to what it actually is because it's a film about film and we're using film in parts. I mean, it would be yeah. blasphemous not to. <laughs> I think what's so what's so you know neat about this too that our listeners don't know yet is like you had to be that intentional and it's so impressive that you even had that foresight because we're talking about, well, you mentioned Camilo, you were on the project for about seven years and Alyssa, you were on it for 13 or so. So that's like, it's really incredible. <laughs> you've, you've pulled off quite a feat. Um, so you mentioned, Alyssa, you mentioned um, some of the things that you learned from filmmakers that you met along the way and that you interviewed. Before we get to them, I'm curious, I don't remember how much film you found of your, grand, your great grandfathers, but you found a lot of film and eventually you did get to look at it. I'm curious about some of the things you learned, even about like composition or storytelling from, you know, 30 second reels of his that you saw. Well, what was so interesting about his footage was, and something I struggle with in the film outwardly, is why was he filming them? 
Why was he filming them? Were they, was he just recording memories like we do today? Was it his like Instagram stories? Or was he just testing his camera? Or was he really working on his own personal craft as an artist because he was an artist? Um, both of portraits and then later he dabbled in filmmaking as well. So when I watch his whole movies, I, I hadn't really, really pulled them apart that way. But when I watch his films that he made, I love the humor in them. You can tell he doesn't take himself so seriously. So I liked that, that he poked fun at himself a little bit in his films. In one film um, he made for, I believe it was the police in Switzerland. It was a film for children, how to, um, how to be safe with cars being more prevalent, how to not hit, get hit by cars, basically. And so it's this cautionary tale basically, and you see kids running through the street, almost getting hit, someone slips on a banana peel. So he was trying to make educational films fun. And this is, I don't know, 1933, I believe. So I liked that, that at that time, a lot of films were dry, or were more dry, that especially um, like PSA type films. But he had a lot of humor to his films, so I appreciated that. But as far as composition, you know, I mean, honestly, I hadn't thought about it. But I'm going to go watch and see what nuggets I can take from them. I'm just, like, mentioning that now, like, definitely has, like, bells, like, going off in my head. Because the one thing that I kind of, like, did, I'm kind of realizing as I play things back in my head is, um, yeah, I wonder to what extent... Like, there were rules that people had already developed at that point when he was shooting some of his early stuff. Like, I feel like it was kind of a wild frontier, you know? Um, I mean, yeah, you had, Lumin like, Lumiere Brothers films and all sorts of other early filmmakers, but, like, I wouldn't say that they had hard-set rules that were established. So um, I think it's kind of... He was shooting kind of in a way that we all do with our cell phones today. It's kind of an afterthought. It's more like you're just trying to capture the image, mm -hmm. and you see it when people are walking around and, like, kind of staring at the camera oddly or being goofy around it, like things that we kind of didn't expect that we would see. And that to me was kind of more of the surprising element to see how people were interacting with it. And it felt more genuine than, than not. You know, it didn't feel like people were putting on acts. They just didn't know how to like kind of respond to the camera sometimes. I found that pretty fascinating. Later on in his footage, it's obvious that like there are choices being made and like, you know, he's cutting a certain way, he's doing tracking shots and like, so he can end up on a certain subject. But um, like, yeah, I mean, I don't know how else to respond to the, yeah, to how he was, we haven't really studied like how he was framing things or doing them of that nature. Also, he was like very much an artist, you know, and um, there is a big connection to when you're shooting uh, film and, and art. We take some of our finest examples of filmmaking from artists looking at an image. These were the original people that were capturing images and painting light. Um, with cameras, that's what we're doing at the same time. So that I found uh, very prevalent with JB's work because he was an artist and also an inventor at the same time. He put himself through art school by painting portraits of his professors, started sculpting, and I think all of that kind of played into how he was shooting and filming, even though these were industrial, educational films. Um, 
now we have some homework to do. Yeah, <laughs> so. I'm, I'm eager to hear the answer later. We could put it in the article. Yeah. And for those listening, JB is Jacques Balzé, who we've been talking about the whole time. He's not JB to the rest of us yet. You know, we've, we've got to get to know him better. Um, so, so we talked a little earlier about all these amazing people, you know, that you had in the film, these incredible kind of um, experimental and more mainstream indie filmmakers who um, pepper the entire uh, film. And I love, I have to give you a compliment, you know, I see a lot of these, these kind of historic docs or docs that have a, an historic element and the interviews can be like really dry or sort of self-aggrandizing and somehow you pulled out just some real gems of quotes from these folks that felt like warm and, you know, really, really part of the narrative in a, in a nice organic way. That's just an aside. Um, so we had Vim Vendors and Barbara Hammer and Jonas Mikas, and um, you must have learned a lot from them that would be relevant to our listeners, to filmmakers that might not have been relevant to like your film's audience. So I'm curious about some things that you might have picked up from these folks, any filmmaking advice or life advice that would apply to filmmakers that didn't make it into the film. For sure, both of us got an entire lesson several different times in diff different ways from each of these experimental filmmakers and learned things that we had no idea. I mean, we'd seen it, but you didn't realize what the process was. So one of the things that we also did is early on, we weren't able to always do this, is we would bring a Bolex and we'd have the filmmakers shoot with it. And they would show us literally the techniques. You really see it with Joel's interview. Um, he's He was like one of the first people that we interviewed and he really kind of set it all off for us in some ways. And um, that was like something that I thought was pretty awesome for us to like, per these are people I read about in film school and to see them do this, I thought was pretty awesome. Um, there was that. And then w one thing that really struck me, I went to a film theory school. So production is all post stuff that I did myself and with friends. Um, you know, he talks about getting to know the filmmaker by reading their images. Um, I mean, that is 100% true. I mean, there is a bit of all of us in the movies we make, can't hide it. it tells you a lot about the history and the time of, of uh, the time in which it was made and the person themselves. And uh, I think that helped us also when we were trying to tell Jack's story, um, finding ways to read his images, what could they mean? Yeah, that Jonas Mika said that, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, one interview that I was really sad didn't make it into the movie was with Peter Hutton. We did uh, Anthology Film Archive, and we handed him the Bolex, and he was outside on the street, and he wanted to get across the message of just watching your surroundings and really noticing what's going on around you. And there's this little tiny random piece of foam that was blowing in the wind along the sidewalk, and I would have walked by that a thousand times and never noticed it. And he's like, there's poetry to this. Watch. So we were out there on the street for probably half an hour, willing the wind to come back so we could capture that moment. Pigeons were walking in and out of the frame. We were just screaming, come on, wind, come on, wind. It was absolutely ridiculous. And he, was, he even laughed a few times. We're just looking over our shoulder, what would people even think? But at the same time, it was such a touching moment. And I'm hoping if we do, you know, specials on the DVD, we can get that that in there because I think that is such an such an important thing to think about is what we walk, 
by every day and what you don't notice if you don't really keep your eyes open. So that was definitely one of my favorite moments. Yeah, also um, more about Jonas Mikas. Um, he kind of had all sorts of things he was saying uh, that just really uh, rung home for me as like having gone to a film theory school. And uh, he talked about there being a difference between, it's in the movie, talked uh, about the difference of filmmaking and filming. Like to make a film is quite different than to just film. But in his own way, he was making diary films, so he was filming, and then also, at the same time, filming a, a film, creating a film. But those are two diff different things that he really helped us understand more so, like, what is it that we're doing? Are we just fil like filming stuff, or are we filming a movie? And to like start to really process that and start to put our work towards that goal instead of like not just trying to capture moments. Um, when we needed to, but actually like kind of stick to like, we're trying to tell these parts of a story. Let's do that and then worry about capturing the moments. Um, so there was a certain amount of discipline that we kind of gained from having talked and interviewed these amazing filmmakers. Uh, Barbara Hammer too. Um, she talks a lot about uh, using the female form as a part of filmmaking and how that camera really worked well uh, for her and her film students when she was uh, teaching f uh, at uh, these film schools that she had. Uh, that part of it was something that never I never really thought about until she like actually showed and you know walked us through the process. And I thought that was really cool too. I never really thought about it like that. Well, and what about you? Now that now we're nearing the end of our conversation, what advice would you pass on to other filmmakers, either who are thinking about, you know, maybe they've been shooting digitally their whole life and they might want to try something film, or um, how to stick with a project for 7, 10, 13 years? Well, I think it's definitely worth working with film while we can, and hopefully we can for a very long time. It's a different experience you have to work with more intention than normal you you can't just keep shooting um and it makes the shots more precious every shot is more intimate and you 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 notice all a lot more happy accidents which i think are always fun for filmmakers whatever the medium but with film for whatever reason i've noticed that i've had many more of those as far as, um, not to say that di that HD is not great and digital is not great. I think they both have their purpose. It's not a either or for me, but I think it, the experience is worth while for both. And also, as far as sticking with a project, I think, and just making it through, you just really, if you really want it, you'll do it. So find something that you are that passionate about that once you've set your intentions that you'll just finish it you'll find a way and don't expect there at least in my experience and what i've seen you can't expect there to be a straight path and you always have to pivot that is the only way this would have happened if i had thought that i could draw a map of how this was going to go it would have never worked out so just being flexible with the process not getting frustrated with yourself Knowing that if you keep going and just get creative, finding solutions, it's a good skill to have anyways. So if you're going to go for it, I mean, at least you'll come out with that at the very least. <laughs> so I guess just 
be ready to be flexible is the biggest thing that I can say. Yeah, I mean, I 110% agree with you. Um, the one thing that definitely, I think in my mind, changed a lot of things um, that we were originally doing or perhaps had learned in film school but never really took into practice in the real world while trying to make a film was just simply shooting on film, uh, going back to discipline, completely changed kind of the way for myself and I think maybe even for Alyssa how we would approach whatever we were shooting because mm -hmm. we realized how finite these moments were to be able to have an hour of someone's time and need to figure out and know how to get the most out of that moment while also getting the information you need and just literally getting stuff on film and creating sort of a discipline and making sure that we were actually doing things right on film so it shows up started to translate over to all our HD work um, and I think coming like knowing already that anything that we did we needed to heavily prepare for and already be accepting of the fact that these plans we made are all going to change very quickly and it's not going to survive the initial intentions that we had but being flexible being calm and being able to work yourself through that process without overthinking it a little bit too much I think really kind of took us a long way because there were moments for sure where we would be stuck and we would be kind of trying to figure out how are we going to make this work, how are we going to make this work, and instead it was kind of like let's just do something rather than doing nothing and we will, let's just be cool, calm, and collective and we'll work this out. Like don't let anyone see that we're <laughs> trying to figure this out as we go. <laughs> and I think it, it, it played out really well for us in the end, but I mean that was a whole you know master's program, doctorate program in filmmaking, sticking with it for 13, seven years. Um, I will say there are things that you learn doing that that you can't learn at film school. Um, you have to learn by doing. And uh, like if you love something enough or are interested enough and you find the right people to surround yourself in doing that that are equally as passionate, um, you yourself will continue to drive yourself forward in finishing that, uh, that goal that you have. And I mean, that's kind of how I felt for myself. Um, I saw Alyssa's passion that was, I mean, unshakable. Um, I'm eternally impressed by her and how she stuck with it the way that she did and the care and love and attention that she gave to the film um, is unlike anything I've ever seen. Um, it was really impressive. <laughs> so. Wow, well that's what it takes and what better way to end a, a no film school interview than by you saying that you can't learn this stuff in film school. Um, so congratulations again on a really amazing film. I'm so excited for especially our filmmaking listeners to get to see it and I wish you luck in the sort of next steps. This was the world premiere and it's all it's all up from here. Thanks for listening. Beyond the Bolex is currently on the festival circuit and will be released next year. If you liked this conversation, come back for a new interview or roundtable every Monday. And on Thursdays, don't miss our Indie Film Weekly news show that fills you in on everything you might have missed when you were busy making films. You can get any of these by searching for the No Film School podcast in iTunes or your favorite app. And be sure to visit nofilmschool.com for useful new filmmaking articles every single day. Meanwhile, stay in touch. You can reach me on Twitter at LizFilm, and we are on Twitter at No Film School. See you on Thursday.